Political Climate is supported by Fish Tank PR. Before green hydrogen was the topic du jour, before every energy analyst was debating the next two quarters of storage cost declines, the Fish Tank team was entrenched in the clean tech and sustainability sector. Fish Tank brings together industry expertise and a love for storytelling. They're dedicated to putting in the time on media outreach to deliver your company meaningful transactional coverage. Whether your organization is scaling as you go for your Series B or expanding globally and reaching new customers and partners, find out the difference Fish Tank can offer at fishtankpr.com forward slash canary. That's F-I-S-C-H tankpr.com forward slash canary. Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. A decade ago, Californians started a climate action movement and launched MCE, the state's first community choice energy provider. Community choice providers empower local communities to make their own decisions about the source of their electricity. Today, MCE offers nearly 40 Bay Area communities almost twice as much renewable energy as the state average. The power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. Learn more at mcecleanenergy.org. It's not always easy to work on a bipartisan basis to get things done, uh, but we always got to try. But balance that with uh, the urgency of so many of these issues. If you believe climate change truly is an existential threat, then you have to act with that urgency. I don't see that necessarily on a bipartisan basis. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Political Climate, a bi-weekly podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and presented in partnership with Canary Media. I'm your host, Julia Piper, and on the line from another corner of Los Angeles is Brandon Hurlbut, clean tech investor, policy consultant with Boundary Stone Partners and climate advocate. Brandon, how are you? You getting pumped up for the, uh, oh my God, I almost said Stanley Cup. The other, the other game that's happening here, that's a big one. You're so Canadian. <laughs> yeah, the Super Bowl. That's the one. Uh, yeah, I'm excited that it's here in L.A. But I just got back from uh, San Francisco. I was at the BNEF Summit, had some of our listeners come up to me who attended some of our live shows. So that was cool. And I think it was the first conference I've ever been to that you were not at, Julia. Because you Probably. know you love the conferences. Love the conference circuit. <laughs> totally. I know. I miss conferences. When are, are they happening now? I got to get my calendar full again. Uh, glad you were there. So fun that people you know, had heard of us before. We got to get political climate back on the road again. My heart's still broken from when we were accepted to South by Southwest. And then COVID shut it down. So that was a real bummer. Really like that month. Yeah. And uh, also on the line here is Shane Skelton, who is just down the road in Southern California. He's an advisor on energy, infrastructure and environmental policy issues, also at Boundary Stone Partners, as well as our resident expert on all things Capitol Hill. Shane, how are you doing today? After that intro, I'm feeling like a real afterthought, Julia. So less good than I was five <laughs> minutes ago. But, um, you know, we hey, always joke. second the best, second the well, best. <laughs> We're all in Southern California and, you know, I, I, it's hard for me to explain to people where I live vis-a-vis Los Angeles because, you know, it's just really close. It's not, not LA. It's not LA. And so like the difference is now I can say the difference is my life will not change at all with the Super Bowl happening here. Whereas if you live in LA, you're going to be like gridlocked on every freeway. We're like right outside the bubble. What would be like the 395 bubble if you were in DC? True enough. But Hey, good vibes, lots of energy coming to SoCal. I think here's actually a fact I do know that it's really rare, if not maybe it's never happened before, where the team competing is also hosting. 
the Super Bowl? Happened last happened year. Last Julia. year. Never before that. Okay, no. never mind. That my one little contribution there was going to matter. You know, I I got in a bar argument about that, and I was like forcefully proud of myself, and so and someone like clearly proved me wrong that they played. Yeah, the Buccaneers played in Tampa last year. I think points for trying though. Julia's Thanks. working hard at this today. <laughs> really, we respect the hustle on sports. It's the nicest thing you ever said to me. If the Rams play well, Julia, they might score a goal. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's wrong, Shane. <laughs> anyway, thank you all for tuning in. I really appreciate everyone who comes and listens to this show every two weeks when we publish. And I just wanted to take a second to say that because that's what makes the show possible. We you know, started this to have productive and informative dialogues on climate and clean energy policy and politics. And we see your feedback on Twitter at poly underscore climate and on other platforms on our website, politicalclimatepodcast.com. So thank you for that. And speaking of feedback, I just wanted to take a second to say we're so grateful to everyone who can and will leave us a rating and review wherever it is that you listen to this show, whether that's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other platform. That engagement really helps us reach more people and keep the podcast going and growing. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. If you take a moment to tap five stars or leave us your thoughts, that really helps us, you know, design the show going forward. And um, you can let me know how little I know about sports <laughs> right there. Yeah, we're on Spotify like Joe Rogan, but no uh, vaccine controversy here, even with Shane. Come for the political climate discussion. Stay for the refreshing vaccine sanity. I'll always defend free speech, though. 100 percent of the time, every time. <laughs> Well, moving on, though, from that, we have a really exciting, we're not going to go deeper into free speech right now, uh, but we do have a really exciting guest that we have on the show today. It's Senator Alex Padilla. Senator Padilla has served as a U.S. Senator from California since just last year, 2021, when he was appointed by Governor Gavin Newsom to take the place of then-Senator and now current Vice President Kamala Harris. Notably, he's the first Latino Senator to represent California in state history, Padilla previously served as Secretary of State of California from 2015 to 2021. Before that, he served as a California state senator and member of the Los Angeles City Council. It's been a little over a year since Senator Padilla took office, and this fall, he's up running in the midterm elections. He's described the past year as tumultuous, but also full of a lot of goodness. We'll talk to the senator about what has worked and what hasn't on Capitol Hill, things like infrastructure, wildfire legislation. We'll talk about the future of the Build Back Better Act, also the upcoming Supreme Court nomination, and the future of political discourse in Washington, D.C. So without further ado, let's turn to that interview. Senator, thank you so much for your service to the great state of California, which we all call home on this podcast. Thank you so much for joining us on Political Climate. We appreciate you being here. Uh, thank you, Julia. Good to be with you. Senator, you've been in office for a year now. Not much has happened. Uh, we've only had a pandemic, an insurrection, uh, which has been normalized with legitimate political discourse. We have lots to talk about today. Uh, we want to get to some voting rights issues, which you have great expertise on, having been the Secretary of State here in California. But first, I think for our listeners, the thing that is most on their mind, of course, is Joe Manchin is saying Build Back Better is dead. Uh, the White House is saying there's still conversations going on with the Senate. What's your take? Where are we at? Oh, I don't give up that easily. That's my take. And uh, I don't think most of my colleagues are giving up that easy. You know, you say uh, that the whole world seems to love to quote Joe Manchin on any given day at any given hour. So when he says Build Back Better, step off, maybe the exact version that he last took a look at. But uh, in my conversations with him and so many others, there's so much in the Build Back Better proposal that is not just important, it's urgent, frankly, including but not limited to some of the climate change proposals, the child care proposals, 
investing in uh, healthcare. I mean, my God, if we've learned nothing else from the pandemic, it's the need to modernize our healthcare infrastructure and expand capacity for a growing population. You know, the inclusion of immigration reform elements is important to me. So uh, we're going to continue to work at it. And whether uh, it takes on a new name or becomes a two or three bill package, I'm confident that we're going to make some significant progress here in the near future. Can I ask what that would look like, Senator, just functionally, the different pieces of Build Back Better? How could they be reconstituted into some new piece of legislation or, or broken up into different ones, given that the Democrats are also operating under reconciliation, which has its own special kind of process? Right. So the, the budget reconciliation process, and now we're getting very technical real quick here, it's a, the unique opportunity to be able to move a bill and a comprehensive one, I would hope. Uh, on a majority vote basis. If we take uh, some of my Republican colleagues at their word, which can be a little dicey sometimes, you know, there's a bipartisan support for some elements of what's in the Build Back Better agenda. So, hey, if, if they want to bring votes and say, let's uh, get some child care investment done on a bipartisan basis, uh, bring it up. If they want to uh, get some education investments going on a bipartisan basis, then bring it on. So there's going to be different ways to do it. That's why the negotiations continue. Uh, so I think the, the most honest thing we can tell the public is, you know, the Build Back Better is not dead. Uh, it's morphing, continues to be negotiated. But I do see us taking uh, some uh, significant steps here in, uh, in the foreseeable future. I just want to take a moment to say thank you, Senator, for supporting a provision in the Build Back Better Act that would make it more affordable for lower income families to purchase clean energy solutions. This provision was outlined in a bill that Senator Ossoff introduced called the Clean Energy for All Homes Act. I just want to say that there's a coalition of, of hundreds of organizations who appreciate your work on this measure that's now in Build Back Better and your work in this area more broadly. No, it's, uh, you're, you're welcome. And let me just underscore why it's uh, so important. You know, I'm so uh, encouraged that the term equity is being used so much in the Biden-Harris administration. Uh, there's conversations about equity in healthcare, equity in education, equity in environmental protection, and just access to uh, solar, for example, should be no exception. And uh, it comes uh, for me uh, from my experience in chairing the State Senate Committee on Energy, Utilities, and Communications from my time in the uh, California legislature, yes, low-income communities have just as much at stake when it comes to air quality, when it comes to climate change as anybody else. But sometimes our incentive programs or our subsidy programs aren't geared towards ensuring their participation and their inclusion. So uh, for me, it was a no-brainer to sign on to the bill and uh, to help advance uh, not just climate change for climate change's sake, but making sure that we're being inclusive in how we approach it. Yeah, Senator, that was wonderful. You and your team, just for our listeners' um, information, I guess, uh, were incredibly helpful on that provision. Also, um, the zero emissions home provisions that you know help families of all income levels, but you know particularly focused on lower income families, get electric appliances in their homes. So, you know, we appreciate that and, and hope to see that move forward uh, and build back better. Just as sort of a joke, I saw on Twitter, which is which is right. Um, we're going to have a difficult time explaining to our kids that we had these natural gas burning appliances in our homes. And then we had carbon monoxide monitors to make sure they didn't kill us. So it's, it's uh, great that you've been a leader on in that space. But I do want to talk a little bit about the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act as well, the, the bill that did go through, and really pick your brain on you know whether you thought as a, as a first-term senator 
that that was a, a healthy, you know, bipartisan process? And then what particularly in that bill you think is useful, especially some of the, the wildfire stuff in California? Because I do think it's a little bit unfair when all of us say we haven't done anything on climate. Certainly, there's a lot more to do and there's some great stuff and build back better. But I do think the U.S. Senate and, and the House, for that matter, did do some pretty great things and, and were able to get it across the finish line. Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up. You know, uh, as you know, 2021 was my first year in the United States Senate representing California. Uh, and to think that despite the environment I came in, you talked about the insurrection, you talked about COVID, that my time here began with uh, weighing in and helping pass the American Rescue Plan. And all that did uh, from a COVID response standpoint earlier in the year. Uh, and of course, the year uh, ended uh, almost with the uh, present signing the uh, Infrastructure and Jobs Act uh, that I also had a chance to kind of uh, influence and weigh in on. There's a couple of the pieces that I'm particularly proud of to give people a flavor for the significance of what was included in that. Uh, one of the first bills I introduced was to leverage federal resources to help school districts transition away from diesel school buses to zero emission uh, electric buses. The technology exists. It's proven. Uh, and I approached it not just with a, you know, a senator hat on, but a proud product of the Los Angeles Unified School District with memories of riding a school bus when I was in elementary school. Uh, and I could still tell you what that diesel exhaust smells like. And to think that we had an opportunity to uh, target that a couple of data points that may excite you. Uh, more than 90% of bus fleets in America are school bus fleets. And more than 90% of those buses are diesel. And so it's a very targeted approach to having a big impact. And it's actually a win-win-win. You know, when you uh, retire diesel school buses and replace them with zero emission, it's obviously better for the environment. But I'll tell you, it's also better for public health. And it's better for those uh, children's educational attainment levels because healthier children learn better. Plenty of data around that. So that's just one piece of the Investment and Jobs Act. Another one, the very first bipartisan bill I introduced was known as the Power On Act. Uh, last February, you may recall when ice storms devastated Texas and uh, took out their electrical grid. Uh, devastating consequences, not just from an economic standpoint. Some people lost lives. Some people were they had uh, health issues as a result. I saw that as an opportunity. And I approached uh, Senator Cornyn from Texas uh, and kind of opened the conversation like this. I said, I see what's happening in Texas. It's only a matter of time before the electrical grid in California is being jeopardized, not by ice storms, but by wildfires, right? Climate change is real. We're seeing real impacts of it. There's got to be something we can do. Let's leverage federal resources and policy to work with states and utilities to uh, not just improve the reliability of the electrical grid, but the resiliency of the electrical grid. And for everybody in the climate fight, we know the distinction there. Resiliency is important. By modernizing, making it more efficient, we can also reduce emissions and uh, make it a part of a, a climate strategy. Uh, we introduced a bill seeking a billion dollars. It was so popular on both sides of the aisle, it was included in the Infrastructure and Jobs Act. 
but not for one billion, but for five billion. And that got signed into law by the president. So just a couple of examples on the power of so many of these uh, elements of the Infrastructure and uh, Jobs Act that um, you know we're going to see benefits for years to come. And, and, and on that note, before we move on to, to some other topics, I'm curious, you've had a pretty active first year. I mean, I doubt many, uh, again, many senators or, or House members have spent their first year with sort of as much going on as you've seen. But with all the good and, and the bad, um, do you envision your future in the Senate, you know, being a place where there is a lot of bipartisan collegiality, or are you more concerned that, that that's not really the direction we're heading? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, not, not to avoid the question, I'm giving you a, an honest answer here. Uh, you know, first of all, relishing the opportunity and the responsibility to serve in this capacity at this time. Uh, if you look at my, uh, career in public service from my days on the Los Angeles City Council, my time in the state legislature, uh, even as California Secretary of State. I'm more than happy to work on a bipartisan basis to get good things done. But I do fear that the, the times we're living in are very partisan, very divisive. They're always partisan to some level, but it's pretty bad right now. Uh, so it's not always easy to work on a bipartisan basis to get things done. Uh, but we always got to try. Uh, but balance that with uh, the urgency of so many of these issues. If you believe climate change truly is an existential threat, then you have to act with that urgency. I don't see that necessarily on a bipartisan basis. Just like a year ago when uh, we were in much darker days as it pertains to COVID. You know, to me, that was an existential issue for a lot of the communities like the ones I grew up in. But you didn't see that uh, necessarily on a bipartisan basis. I'll throw another one at you. The fight to protect voting rights in America. To think that we can't even set up an independent bipartisan commission to investigate what happened on January 6th, the deadly insurrection of last year that was fueled on the premise of the big lie is uh, beyond sad. It's, it's truly dangerous. So we have a lot of work to do to maybe create more breathing room for bipartisan work on true real issues and challenges. Political Climate is supported by Fish Tank PR. Fish Tank PR is a public relations and marketing firm that was listed as one of Inc. Magazine's 5,000 fastest growing businesses in America last year. As the cleantech and sustainability sectors have boomed, so has Fish Tank. But unlike many large PR firms, the Fish Tank team has been immersed in cleantech for more than a decade delivering results for clients ranging from renewable energy producers and software platforms to battery manufacturers and green builders. From PR and digital marketing to content writing, the team at Fish Tank helps you develop a strategy of bringing your work to not only wider audiences, but the right audience. They'll listen and learn about the work you're doing on the ground as part of the climate tech revolution and translate that into visibility and strong narratives for your projects. To learn more about Fish Tank's approach to clean tech and services, go to fishtankpr.com forward slash canary. That's F-I-S-C-H tankpr.com forward slash canary. Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. MCE was California's first community choice energy provider. For more than 10 years, MCE has helped communities across the Bay Area source significantly more renewable energy compared to the state's average. Nearly 40 communities are now a part of MCE, and together they're leading on climate action for a brighter future. But the power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. It's community power. 
MCE's efforts on climate justice and energy innovations have helped vulnerable populations qualify for programs like electric vehicles, energy storage, energy savings, and more. By building and buying more renewable energy, MCE puts the power back in your hands. We all deserve a fossil-free future that combats climate change and prioritizes energy equity. Learn more and take action at mcecleanenergy.org. Senator, I'd like to pull on a couple of those threads that you mentioned. So recently, the RNC, the Republican National Committee, categorized January 6th as legitimate political discourse. What impact does that have on your relationships in the Senate? Do Democratic senators like you just say, well, that's just hot air and politicking? Or do you see it as something more dangerous? And how does that impact the relationships and the conversations you're having with your colleagues in the Senate? Legitimate political discourse? Are you kidding me? We all saw what happened on January 6th. That was not just a violent insurrection, it turned out to be a deadly insurrection in the nation's capital. And uh, we shouldn't talk about it lightly. We shouldn't be dismissive about it. It uh, you know, was not a spontaneous, organic you know, crowd getting out of control. It was premeditated. Uh, it was uh, incited. Here's, I guess, again, some good news, bad news. Good news is behind closed doors, there are some uh, Republican uh, colleagues that are willing to kind of speak, speak to the truth of it uh, and a whole lot of other issues. Uh, the sad part is not as many of them are willing to say as much publicly, certainly not vote accordingly uh, publicly. I gave the example of the failure to uh, establish an independent bipartisan commission to investigate January 6th, when we can't even overcome the filibuster rule to have a debate about uh, fundamental voting rights and access to the ballot and not be sucked in by conspiracy theories about massive voter fraud. Uh, I, I do think it puts us in a dangerous space, but it just means that the work is uh, that much more important and I'm uh, that much more committed. You mentioned voting rights there, Senator. What is next for that, do you think? The Democrats tried to move a bill forward. It did get blocked. And, you know, we are climate and energy podcast for the most part, but so much of these things are intertwined and it really affects the landscape that we're all working in. So I wonder what your thoughts are there on the path forward. Yeah. Uh, another example, not giving up. You know, we've tried a couple of approaches when it comes to legislation through the regular process, only to run up against uh, the filibuster. Uh, we've tried tackling the filibuster itself and came just shy of being able to tweak the rules. You know, there's a lot of us willing to eliminate the filibuster to make progress on a whole lot of issues. If we did nothing else but to tweak the filibuster rules to allow voter protection measures to go forward, uh, we see how uh, important and timely it is because of attacks on the right to vote in so many states that are completely controlled by Republicans, Republican majority legislatures, Republican governors, making it harder for eligible people to register and vote. You know, talk about un-American and un-small d democratic. And so we, we can't give up. The conversations are active and continue, uh, hoping we can find another way. And before you know it, look, the general public can help us out here. Before you know it, we'll be going to the polls, not just in primaries, but in the November midterm elections. If uh, Democrats don't just uh, maintain majorities in the House and the Senate, but are able to grow the majorities, then I think that makes uh, making progress on voting rights, climate, and other issues that much easier. 
Recognizing we're getting low on time, I wanted to take a couple minutes to touch on two other issues that you introduced that are related to the issues we cover. One is called the FIRE Act. It would revise, I think, the way FEMA works in response to disasters. And you've also worked on the Salton Sea, which is an area of California where there's all kinds of minerals and things we can use to power our clean energy future. Could you just quickly touch on those two pieces and what we should look out for there? Sure. Uh, uh, Actually, very excited on the recent uh, unanimous bipartisan committee vote on the FIRE Act. Uh, And at its essence, it's really sort of bringing uh, FEMA uh, up to uh, modern times. You know, FEMA's uh, been in existence for a long time. They've gotten good at not just responding to hurricanes, floods, tornadoes, but being able to act in advance of those disasters through uh, sort of pre-positioning resources to be able to mitigate the impact of natural disasters or to more quickly respond as part of the recovery process. Uh, But they haven't done the same when it comes to wildfires. And you look at the increasing uh, frequency and severity of wildfires in the West, we know that uh, it's sadly the new normal because of climate change. So bringing uh, FEMA guidelines, criteria, processes, and procedures up to speed in a way that better reflects and responds to the threat of wildfires is what this bill would do. Uh, and it's not just a California issue. It's the, the greater Western United States, but California more so than any other state. As it pertains to the Salton Sea, yes, those of us deep in the uh, climate uh, discussion and the renewable energy discussion know that there's some unique and precious uh, minerals that are necessary for some of our clean technologies and equipment. So uh, being able to utilize those resources out of the Salton Sea is sort of a win-win, good for climate, good for job creation and economic development opportunities in a part of our state that uh, can absolutely use that. Yeah, Senator, following up on that a little bit, um, and, and that's absolutely you know right. I, I sometimes wonder, and don't pretend like I have the answers, but do we have a situation where we're going to need certain commodities to do all the things that we all want to do, which is decarbonize every sector of our economy, uh, and our unwillingness uh, to develop them here and our over-reliance on China? Uh, I'm not a huge advocate for mining and, and, and not trying to, to be, but I do wonder, you know, those two things are going to conflict, and I'm not sure, you know, how we address that longer term, if we're right about increased adoption of, you know, clean energy resources, that necessarily is going to drive demand uh, for those minerals and and in some cases, rare earth minerals. How are you thinking about that moving forward? Yeah. Well, look, as uh, with a whole lot of the most important public policy, it's complex, right? There's different layers to this. Uh, We have not just the climate discussion in isolation, uh, but to advance it, yeah, what's the supply chain look like? Supply chain's been in the news a whole lot lately. Where's manufacturing domestically and around the world versus uh, the people who are purchasing whatever the, the commodity might be? You know, one of the real world simple examples I share with uh, friends when I'm back home is, do you remember the early days of COVID when it was a, a struggle to find toilet paper and hand sanitizer in the store, right? You can have a very similar conversation when it comes to semiconductors for example, that most people don't think about, but in our, in your phones and our computers and our, the televisions that we watch, the cars that we drive, everything else. So domestic production, domestic manufacturing capability, I think it's both an economic development, job creation opportunity, as well as a national security strategy in so many ways. But especially in California, we also have environmental protections and concerns to balance uh, in that, whether it's a mining operation, whether it's a mining facility, a uh, manufacturing facility, or any other area of the of the supply chain. So 
not saying it's easily done, but I think it is important to increase that domestic capacity for a number of reasons. Yeah, two things. So, Senator, thanks for speaking out so forcefully on climate, on voting rights, on democracy reform. I think our listeners will be so happy to hear that. Uh, it makes me so excited to support you and work for you to continue to be our, our senator and to represent us uh, here in California. Another activity that you're involved in in the Senate is you're on the Judiciary Committee. So you'll have front row seat on the Supreme Court nomination. And we know that there's a lot of things in front of the Supreme Court right now that are going to impact climate. Things like the non-delegation doctrine or how much deference the court will give to the agencies to implement things like the Clean Air Act. Uh, so this can be very consequential. What are you looking for in Supreme Court nominee and how do you think that plays out? All right. First thing I want to mention is uh, the president's uh, pledge to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court if he had the opportunity and he's got it. He's reiterated his commitment to that. And I'm just ecstatic as uh, the first Latino to represent California in the United States Senate. I can assure you representation matters, right? Unique perspectives, unique voices as uh, some of the most important decision making bodies in the country are uh, uh, happening. And same goes for the Supreme Court. So we are overdue uh, to have a black woman on the Supreme Court. And I'm excited to play a role in seeing that happen. Uh, now that being said, again, it's, a, it's an important opportunity, a lot of key issues from climate issues to uh, health access issues to voting rights and everything in between. So I'm looking forward to a, a nominee who, look, no doubt President Biden will choose somebody who is more than abundantly qualified, but to the extent that we bring a unique life experiences to a body that hasn't always uh, reflected that, I think that's uh, going to be good for the country, good for policy, good for all of us. All right. On a happy note, Senator, are you going to the Super Bowl here in L.A.? <laughs> uh, I've been invited, but I have a mortgage to pay. So I will be watching it from the comfort of the couch in my living room with my family. And uh, I'll also confess this, the uh, price of hot dogs and beer is much better at home than it's going to be at the Super Bowl. <laughs> well, we know who you're rooting for. Whose house? Rams house. Rams house. There we go. There we go. I went to uh, I went to the Arizona game, the wild card game, and and my budgetary restrictions have also kicked in since then. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Senator, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, thank you all. Next time, hopefully, we can do this in person. Absolutely. Thank you, Senator. All right, that brings us to the end of this episode. Thanks again to everyone for listening. As a reminder, you can find Political Climate on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, pretty much wherever you like to listen. Hit subscribe and continue to follow along with the show. Thank you to our editor, Kyle McDonald, for his great work always, and to our producer, Maria Virginia Alano. We'll be back again in two weeks. Thanks all so much. Until soon.